a privilege for me to again be here with you to identify with the people of God, which is uh, my true identity is in Christ, and I'm just happy to be in an assembly that uh, we can sit together and agree on important matters. And so it's a, it was good to sit in your Sunday school class, and I hope what I have to say here today um, accents what you all have been discussing. For a message this morning, I would like to uh, follow up on uh, what I was speaking about last evening. One of the issues that uh, the servant of God, who is profitable and usable in the kingdom of God, is confronted with is his own usefulness. I've entitled this message, Prestige, Position, Popularity. Prestige, Position, and Popularity. My text will be taken from Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. Jesus is our, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so um, I enjoy taking sermons out of his walk. And so here's an incident that happened as he taught the twelve. Mark chapter 9, beginning of verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Our Heavenly Father, as we are together here on the Lord's Day, edifying each other by conversing and uh, agreeing upon important truths, I pray, Lord, that today in this message, again, we will emphasize at least some of the things that you desire to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. In professional sports, those few highly honed skills, or rather I should say, those, with the, those few with those highly honed skills have but a few moments to deliver the blow that will defeat the opposition. Though these moments are extremely critical and tense as those talented players, using their skill to impress their admirers who have paid a handsome fortune to watch them perform. If they fail to deliver at these critical moments, those worshipers in the stands will be highly disappointed and so will their team owners. 
Therefore, at their bargaining table, for the millions of dollars, it will not hold. The pressure to deliver for the following, the rise and fall of popularity, is everything in those brief moments. For soon, in a few years, these players will lose their strength to age, and they will no longer be household names in their various regions. Others will come and take their place. So similarly, as we sit here together today, we're not much different as we pass through the stage of our lives. We find ourselves needing to deliver to a watching audience. If we fail to meet the expectation of our admirers, we will lose popularity and prestige that we secretly desire. We will feel our position shifting. We will lose our strength to age. The younger will rise and take our place. I ask you, what is this? What is this goal in life anyhow? What is so fulfilling about that? What to you is ultimate? And how do you plan to arrive? Where is meaning found for you? And what would bring you true satisfaction? Prestige? Popularity? Position? Before you shake your heads, you better be real. Because <laughs> you're living and breathing. So what is this thing that we inherently chase? This popularity, prestige, position. Some other words would be greatness, recognition, esteem, fame, success, or power. The world defines it in terms like, yeah, power, possessions, prestige, position. Um, if we can demand a service from others, we've arrived. It's that self-serving culture of the me first. Acting like a servant just really isn't a popular concept unless you can be a public servant. So why is it that in our humanness we so desperately crave popularity? What is that? Where does that incessant urge come from? Why would we be jealous over the success of another? Why is that a painful reality? There really is no joy in jealousy anyhow. It's a grief. Has God created us this way? Why the competition for the upper hand? Is it, is it, um, is it that there is a normal desire that has actually been turned into an idolatrous indulgence? We like to be noticed. And I like to be noticed 
And it feels good, and so I want it in larger and larger amounts. So, is this where it started? In Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 15. How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How thou art cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations! For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven! I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation of the sides of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Is that where it started? With Lucifer? Or did it start here? Ephesians 5.29 For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. We do love ourselves. We have value and we are blessed and are encouraged when we are affirmed. And we like to make ourselves comfortable. God has created each one of us with a desire to be appreciated by others. And if you don't feel appreciated, you're feeling empty. The desire for approval to be seen, appreciated, loved is one of the strongest motivators of our actions and feelings. And approval covers a lot of things that we want from ourselves and others. So, I'll give you a, few, a list here. We want to feel acceptance. We want to feel that we belong with people who we seek approval from. It's part of why we're here. It's part of why you came. We want to feel appreciation. We want to feel that someone recognizes our value and our abilities and appreciates them. And we want attention. We want to feel heard. We seek validation. We want to know that we matter. Oh, and we want to feel loved. To be loved is one of the strongest human desires. We want to be liked, which is second to love. We want to be liked by our friends, liked by our peers, and society in general. And we want to be understood. We want others to understand what we say and what we do. And we appreciate when others can sympathize with us. The devil is an expert. He's an expert at taking what God created to be normal and natural and turning it into an idolatrous indulgence. So I will take my desire to be comfortable and appreciated at the expense of others. So we naturally, humanly tend to love ourselves more than we love our neighbor. Luke 10:27 and he answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, it's not that loving ourselves is entirely wrong. No man ever yet hated his own flesh. 
No one. Or you say, oh, what about low self-esteem? Drop it. Everybody loves themselves. It's just that I'm not getting what I think I deserve. I deserve better than what I'm getting. It's just that we love ourselves too often too much. And Jesus said in numerous places, we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We should seek to make our neighbor as comfortable as I make myself. We shouldn't use our neighbor to make ourselves better. So this is where the discussion with the disciples comes in. They were discussing about who should have the most recognition. They were discussing with themselves who was the most advanced. Who does Jesus think the most of here? Just among us twelve. Whose name gets mentioned the most often? And who's asked to speak the most? Can you imagine the embarrassing situation, that the, their, how the discussion actually took place? Now you all remember here, I was the one who was asked to... Yeah, but I was the one who really got to... And Jesus calls it a dispute. What was it that you disputed among yourselves, by the way? They had that child's me first mentality. And Jesus said, what was that? Would you, would you recount how the conversation went, fellas? I'd like to know. And they held their peace. Bragging never sounds pretty, repeated. <laughs> I'm the biggest. I'm the greatest. I'm the best. You wouldn't believe what I did. I, I just, I simply, I wouldn't want to recount to you the bragging statements that I've made. It's embarrassing. But you know, at the time, it seemed just like the appropriate, fitting thing to say. But later on, you sit back and, you know, your wife says, <laughs> you know what that sounded like? And you shrivel. And you hold your peace. You don't want to say. I simply don't want to repeat them. But now Jesus is asking them to repeat it. And they're saying, oh, don't make us do that. But you know, this wasn't the only time that this happened. I could give you, see, one, two, three, at least three other incidents where this took place. And before you get too hard on them, you know... <laughs> Who do you compare yourself to? I don't know, we just can't think of ourselves to actually be different from the disciples. Do you know, it actually happened once. It actually happened once. That someone was given the privilege to have popularity and to have a position, to have prestige. He got it without hardly any work. you have any idea who that was? King Solomon. Solomon was given the choice by God. God asked Solomon to do whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And God would provide. So God gave Solomon a signed blank check 
Now, Solomon purchased, in a sense, whatever he wanted. So Solomon asked for wisdom, and he was granted it. But you know, wisdom was the only the beginning. Solomon's lifetime, he accumulated greater riches than anyone else ever had, ever imagined. He was sought out by royalty. His popularity and, and reputation spread through the whole world, and they flocked to his door for advice and counsel. And during his kingship, there was a time of great security and peace. And it all started with that blank check for wisdom. But you know, Solomon came to the throne with a cloud hanging over him. Remember who his mother was? The result of an adulterous affair. That wasn't his fault. But he still carried that shame. And I somehow think that that impacted him. And the Lord said, The sword will never depart from your house to King David. In my mind, I think that was a cloud of insecurity that hung over Solomon. I'm not sure that he ever overcame it. I'm only speculating. Because insecurity will make us do some strange and unconfident things. Solomon became an illustration of a gifted man with untamed passions. I talked to you about being gifted last evening. You all are gifted. But he became an illustration of a gifted man with untamed passions. He was very talented and very brilliant. Opportunities by the score. He was successful in whatever he did. Smart. Intelligent. He authored thousands of Proverbs, those wise sayings. I taught Proverbs in Bible school one time. That's fun. That's a good class to teach. Get a chance to do it. He knew the answers. He knew what happens when a fool becomes a fool. He had the answers. Can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burned? Absolutely not. You can't put a campfire in your lap and not get burnt. You can't commit adultery without getting burnt. He knew it. And yet Solomon amassed wives and concubines. Didn't he know, didn't Solomon know that with every wife he took, he took on a moral obligation? You don't just take a wife and not be responsible for your action. What made him think that wife number two would be improvement over wife number one? What about number three? Adding number three would be an improvement over the first two. Number four. Number five. Number six. Wait a minute. A thousand wives? How do you keep a thousand wives? Where do you keep them? <laughs> if you want to read a good book about the life of Solomon, get Lester Bauman's book, when, Where's God When Life Doesn't Make Sense? That book makes Ecclesiastes come alive. And read it slow because it's full. Yeah, he's, Lester Bauman has written a, uh, a treasure. Um, it's, um, and, and in that book, he, he, he actually pictures what he actually could have done with all these wives. But 
Lester suggests that that uh, Solomon was a lonely man. A lonely man. So many gifted men give way to their passions, to their desires. For now they've reached a position. Now they've reached a position and somehow stolen waters are sweet. It's a lie. But stolen waters become sweet. They're in the place of influence. And now they're thinking, aha, now I can have what I want. And they go out for the nightlife. Solomon, speaking came so easy for him. Proverbs came so easy for him. Wisdom came so easy for him. Gifted people. Things come easy for them. The bottom line is, everyone needs a friend who is able to speak into their lives. We need a friend who can speak into my life when I am off. We need to give others platform to speak in our lives. But Solomon never had a prophet to speak to him. Check it out. There was never a prophet to speak to Solomon. Before and after, but not during. It seemed like no one... Who can tell the king anything? Who can tell the leader anything? Who can tell the minister anything? unless they give you platform. We need a friend. Someone to tell us when we're off. Someone to be accountable to. And Solomon seemingly had no one. It seems that the very smart, the very intelligent, don't have to work very hard to learn. Therefore, the tendency is to lack discipline. It doesn't mean they can't learn discipline. They can learn discipline. It's not so very long ago that I sat with a young man who shared about his life with me. And he started out this way. He said, I'm very smart. And he graduated nearly two years early. He gained popularity. And his name became known. But with tears running down his face, he told me the sad tale of his undisciplined life. His personal failures, his depression, and his loss. But he said, I am just now beginning to learn the art of self-discipline. And he's on the path to victory today, and I'm very excited about it. I'd like to draw your attention to another very gifted man, and the story is different. And he learned self-discipline even though he was very gifted. And you were just studying about him in your Sunday school lesson. The story of Joseph 
is a saga of a man who went from the pit to a palace, from rags to riches. He was a man whom God had trusted with remarkable abilities. He was a gifted man. And along with that giftedness, he was given another gift, and that was physical attractiveness. If you read in Genesis chapter 39, verse 6, it says, And Joseph was a goodly man and well favored. That word goodly there means handsome. He was a hunk. <laughs> he was attractive in form and appearance. He was, Joseph was blessed with outward beauty. He was attractive through and through, both inward and outward. And that physical attractiveness became a snare. Potiphar's wife noticed that he was good looking. And she went after him. Got him into a nearly impossible position. How could he have won in that position? If he would have given in, he'd have lost. If he ran away, he would lose. He chose to run. Now he's also gifted and blessed with unrivaled advancement. After his release from prison, he was made ruler over the land of Egypt. The king gives Joseph his signet ring, a mark of legal authority. He was given linen garments to be worn only by no, uh, nobility. And he was 30 years old, and yet, and yet he had risen to the highest position in the land besides Pharaoh. The test was to see if Joseph could resist temptations which came with the, now this, this new power, prestige, and popularity, and prominence and position. Joseph had passed the tests of abandonment and allurement, but now he's faced with the greatest test of all, advancement. You know, it often happens. It often happens to those profitable servants. Others notice their unselfish service and they become recognized and influential. But now the test of advancement. Can they remain humble? You see, power, prestige, popularity, position can make a man forget God and the advancement goes to his head. Joseph passed that test and he remained a disciplined man. He was able to bridle his passions and he remained a servant, useful for the purposes that God had for him. So here's just a few conclusions. Gifted people will often need to make special effort to learn discipline themselves and for their passions. Not so gifted people will also need to learn discipline However, they have an extra incentive because they must learn discipline, the discipline of study, so that they can at least get passing grades. I had that handicap. May I, may I quote Solomon? Proverbs 27, verse 21. As the fining pot for silver... As the fining pot for silver and the furnace for gold, 
so is a man to his praise. Wow. The crucible of advancement. You really are. When you're successful, that's a test. That's a big one. During the American Revolution, a man in civilian clothes rode past a group of soldiers. And they were repairing a defensive barrier. And their leader was shouting at them, shouting instructions, but making no attempt to help them. Asked why by the rider, the leader retorted with great dignity, Sir, I am their corporal. And the stranger apologizing, who dismounted and proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers. The job got done, and he turned to the corporal and said, Corporal, the next time you have a job like this, and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief, and I will come and help you again. And with that, George Washington got back on his horse and rode off. I want to go now to Luke chapter 14 and look at verses 7 through 11. This is a parable that Jesus gave again. And I'm going to entitle this parable The Way Up is Down. The Way Up is Down. Luke 14, verse 7. And he put forth a parable to those who were bidden. And when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down at the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, for thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say to thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You can be absolutely sure of that. It's easy to see when other people exalt themselves. But it's a lot harder to see it in myself. Manasseh was determined to be the most wicked of kings. And it was in the day of his distress in a Babylonian prison that he humbled himself. Second Chronicles 33.12 And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. It is possible to humble yourself. Sadly, his son, however, was different. And he humbled not himself before the Lord as Manasseh's father had humbled himself, but Amnon trespassed more and more. So repentance is saying to God, that you are right and I am wrong. When we say this to, to people that point out our faults, that is humbling ourselves. When you say you're right and I'm wrong, we are humbling ourselves. 
Just as surely as you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one, the one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. I'd like to take you to the storyline of the parable that I just read. It's a wedding feast. It's a wedding feast and there's a big table up front. And before that, there's table after table after table. Loaded, loaded with many, many good things. The guests have not yet arrived. But here he comes. It's hopeful. Brother Hopeful arrives and he needs to decide where he's going to sit. Well, to him, as he observes the seats, he, he sees that there is a place, a place to sit that has the most beautiful view of all the guests so he can watch as they arrive. You know, this is one of the best ways of how fleshly thinking works. To my advantage, what is the best move? That I can, best choice I can make so I'm comfortable, popular, gain recognition, and be prominent. It's the general direction of humanity to be number one. I choose the best. My choices are, are, are the best. You know, conversion, I wish that all of that would just change when we get converted but it, do, it doesn't. You know, even, even ordination doesn't change it. It's rather embarrassing. But you know, the sphere of Christian service is a place that's plagued with self-seeking. You think ministers don't notice when they go to a minister's meeting as to who gets asked to speak? How come he gets asked to speak again and he just did last year? Ooh, what's that? Rivalry. Rivalry among ministers. Rivalry among brothers and sisters in church. Sitting down at the highest place kind of becomes standard procedure. And the scripture tells us, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Hmm. Bitterness and resentment are often because I was denied the highest place. Defensiveness often comes when my highest place is challenged. Jealousy is the only sin that gives no pleasure. Someone else gets the place I deserved. Someone says something good about someone else and inwardly I discredit it because that was for me. Okay, back to the story. So the seats are filling up. And here's our friend Hopeful, and he's sitting in the highest seat. And it's whispered around that there's an honored guest that is coming, that is going to attend. And the host brings in the true servant, the guest of honor. Hopeful is delighted that the, the honored is actually being led right up toward him. 
But as they get there, Hopeful feels a tap on his shoulder. And he's asked to move. Hopeful realizes the most humiliating thing has happened. He's actually taken the seat of the most honored guest. Much like he's taken the seat of the bride's parents. He never realized what he had done until he's told. And I think, you know, how often does that happen to me? I didn't realize what I'd done until I was told. You know, but that's conviction. When I realize that I have taken the highest seat, and I feel so, oh, what have I done? What have I done? And it happens when I've taken glory to myself, and, well, this now becomes an astonishing illustration of repentance, of true repentance, because hopeful is asked to move and is asked to sit in the lowest seat. So he begins with shame to stand up in front of all the guests. He rises from his seat and he walks red-faced in front of the crowd all the way down to the lowest seat. All eyes watch as he sits in the seat beside the door. True repentance is never easy. Giving up my reputation, who I thought I was, is never easy. It's just not easy to honestly say, Brother, I was wrong. And when you begin, when you say, I was wrong, you begin to take the lowest seat. When was the last time you said to your family, I was wrong? You said to your husband or wife, I was wrong. You said to a brother or sister in church, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Those are hard words to say. We like to be right. We try to maintain our reputation and try to ignore the reality that I actually have sat down on the highest seat and refused to humble myself. I won't. I won't. But you know, the reality is, here's the truth about the matter. When you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Even though humbling yourself doesn't feel like exaltation at all. It's humiliation. It's red-faced. But now, let's go back to the scene at the lowest seat. All eyes have seen the man sit in the lowest seat. They watch the humiliation take place. Now he sits there with head bowed. He can't look up. But he feels a tap on his shoulder. It's right in the same spot where it was before. And then he hears, Friend, come up higher. What? Who said that? And he looks around. And here is the honored guest standing right there saying, Come with me. 
Come with me. I want you to come and sit with me. Me? Come sit with you? Yes. I want you to come and sit with me. Surely as you humble yourself, you will be exalted. For thus saith the high and lofty one, the one that inhabiteth eternity, the honored guest, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Come now, come sit with me in the holy of holies. That was the attitude of the publican when he prayed thus with himself. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man went to his house justified, Jesus said, rather than the other. We can enter the holy place to be with Jesus. He doesn't want us to stay down, always sitting in the lowest seat, always weeping, never rejoicing, but now rejoicing and gloriously restored. One final illustration. My grandparents, my father's parents, lived in Kansas. Hutchinson, Kansas. That's where most of my roots are. I go down there. I'm related to almost everybody. Well, not quite. But we would make a yearly trip down to Kansas. And as we drove for those many, many hours, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Through Iowa... In Nebraska took forever. We got into Kansas. As we got into Kansas, we'd find the wheat fields, the flat, you could see for miles, flat fields. I began to notice, and I looked forward to them every time, to notice these machines that sat out there in those fields. And they were going up and down and up and down. They were oil well pumps. I was fascinated by them. Don't have any around here that I know of. Up and down. Up and down. They would bend and they would rise. And as they did that, they pumped oil. Then it's, once in a while I'd see a couple of them. One was down. And it just stayed there. It wasn't running. It wasn't operating. Another one was up. And it was stopped there. It's not operating. That's the illustration. If we're going to be pumping oil, we need to be going down the lowest seat. Back up the highest seat. Convicted, back down. Brought back up, back down. It's a cadence of life. Mark 9.35 And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Let's, bow for, or let's kneel for prayer. Shall we kneel together? Our Heavenly Father, you're the master teacher. 
and you know just how to illustrate what we need as your people to understand in our journey of life here. We're identified as the children of God, sons and daughters of the King. Yet, Lord, we have much to learn in the journey of life. And I trust, Heavenly Father, that through these types of lessons, you will teach us how to best live our lives in a cadence of repentance and exaltation. Help us to understand and give us the strength, the courage to admit when we're wrong. Be humble. And then you've promised that we'll be exalted. We don't humble ourselves with a purpose to be exalted. We humble ourselves just in obedience. And you'll take very good care of us. And for that, we're very grateful. Thank you, Lord, for this assembly together as we have agreed together on these important matters that you have said are important for us to know. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.